If you scoop up all the open arrest warrants in America, more than 2 million would be for minor offenses. Michigan, for example, has one open arrest warrant for every 10 residents. 13% of Americans owe student loans. A third of us owe month-to-month -month credit card debt. One in 10 of us owe outstanding unpayable medical debt. As a culture, we've become so comfortable blaming debt on the individual, we overlook companies that are so predatory they'll sue their own staff as a course of day-to-day -day business. Take Methodist Healthcare in Memphis. Between January and June of 2019, Methodist hospitals sued their own staff over hospital bills more than a dozen times. In the prior four years, they had filed lawsuits against 8,300 patients in general. But they began targeting their own staff when they realized courts and warrants were more effective at securing payments on old bills. One of the hospital's cleaning staff owed $23,000 and told the hospital on record, you know how much you pay me? And the money you're paying, I can't live on. She makes $12.25 an hour. Another employee left her job at the hospital still wearing scrubs and gown and appeared in court where she's being sued for $4,000. She claims the hospital didn't even bother contacting her before suing over her bill. I don't know why they can't come upstairs, she said in the courtroom. If Methodist employees had a choice about where their health care came from, they might seek treatment from a competitor. Financial assistant policies at other local hospitals are more generous, but Methodist only allows its employees to seek health care at Methodist facilities. Meaning if an employee gets sick, they're forced to get care at Methodist, knowing full well that the Methodist primarily uses the court system to collect its bills. On one side of the negotiating table, you have workers and scrubs being paid by the hospital. On the other side of the table, you have lawyers in suits also being paid by the hospital. And since the hospital is tax exempt in Memphis, the public is paying for the hospital to employ and fleece its own people. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no duh on the internet. Our nation was founded on debt. To hear your drunk uncle tell it on the 4th of July, the Boston Tea Party was an uncomplicated, kick-ass declaration of freedom. And it was America's first great step toward truck nuts and tailgate parties. It's pretty ironic then that a nation that started with the phrase no taxation without representation has become a legal feedback system for businesses to collect their debts from citizens without having to be physically present. A Pew Research study showed that 34% of foreign-born Hispanic Americans had no credit card or installment loan debt of any kind. And immigrants who arrive with a clean slate start small businesses at twice the rate of born citizens. 
So that's what our episode is about today. Is it better to grow up in a system learning to dodge the debt companies, schools, and police try to pin on us? Or does having a clean slate jumpstart entrepreneurship as much as a pew seems to imply? Myth one, I'm an American and I don't have outstanding debt. So what's holding everyone else back? Myth two, anyone can wipe their own slate. You don't have to be an immigrant to start clean. Just pay off your debts and open a coffee shop. Simple. Myth three, okay, so maybe our system is designed for debt, but how much of that is reflected in the legal system? It's not like law enforcement is more invested in securing payments than solving crime, right? We're going to get to our mess. But first, I want to tell Joe about the Clean Slate families that spawn this episode topic. I want to do like a very brief catch up on one of our other episodes. Do you remember our pranking episode? Yes, I do. I remember that George Clooney enjoys pranking. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I don't remember all of it, but I remember that. <laughs> I remember all of the um, insane, like, real jerk people who, like, set up prank channels and do terrible things to their kids and to strangers in the name of quote-unquote pranking. There's no guile or cleverness, and there's no, like... It's it's not like Candid Camera where they had like an interesting setup. It was just them being rude in public and like calling it a prank for clicks. Yeah, what Joe's talking about is you have families that are setting up, getting their kids in trouble by staging accidents that the kids made at home and then screaming at the kids and then videoing the kids crying. And for some reason that this is getting an online following and and monetizing it for these parents who are pretty much abusing their kids on YouTube. Right. So um, I think I think you were the one that said, like, I, I, I joked about, like, you know, what's the danger in this? And, and you said, well, you, you think that one of us said that, that one of these pranksters is going to get shot eventually. And that's the um, that's the update to this is one of these prank channels uh, by Tanner Cook. Uh, his pranks are mostly he goes in and he, like, wears a security shirt and accuses people of shoplifting. Or he like sneaks up on people and scares them in, in malls. He's like doing mall pranks. And um, he got shot in the stomach the other day because his prank went wrong. And that's, I, it's, that's proof it's not staged then, right? That's proof that he was actually doing. A lot of them are staged with actors on both sides. So this was not that, obviously. He did not get the memo that you're supposed to get friends to act angry and shocked. Yeah. Like he, <laughs> he didn't realize yeah, the others were yeah. doing staged pranks and that yeah he was supposed to do that so right yeah I, I just want we we rarely have a a i'm not gonna i i don't condone violence but that was satisfying like it, it's it, when you look at like his prank channel how mean-spirited it is and just how like aggressively dumb he's being toward people like it it, it isn't it's hard to not hear that and be like well it's not lethal so i am we- as an older person, Joe, I, I can honestly tell you that he's not going to learn from this. <laughs> I can honestly tell you, you would think, you know, but no. Yeah, he's young and the revenue stream is too good, so he'll be out pranking. His next pranks will be on the nurses who are unfortunately having to deal with his ass. 
Okay, so um, this starts... Uh, I, I love topics that kind of start with a question, especially if they spiral out. Like, it, it's oftentimes, Todd, you will ask me a question about something interesting, quirky, or weird, and I will think it's like a no-duh. I'll be like, obviously, you know, obviously it's better to start in America where you have all the benefits and you you have a, a safety net and you, you have all this opportunity. That's the big thing we think of is... Obviously, it's better to start in America where there's opportunity, where the land of opportunity. And the more I dug into this, <laughs> the more my head exploded and the more I started rethinking, like, the way debt works here. Um, so so please, let's start with where this question began. Like, you, you where did this... Well, yeah. I had, someone, I had someone that I worked with and um, he moved from Mondovia about four years ago. And we're in the similar industry. And Moldova is one of the poorest countries in, in um, Eastern Europe. It's the average salary there is forty dollars a month, right? So this man was doing the kind of work he does. He's in construction business. He was doing that for forty dollars a month, and then he moves through his church to, to. And so, what struck me as odd is how quickly immigrant people can rise from. Relatively, not knowing any English, and you know, pennies in their pocket to homeowners and established. I mean, it's it's faster than people do who are already in this in this country who have been here all their life at a similar age and a similar point of their career. And so, I, I brought that up to you. So let's just take him for example. He, he's from Mondovi, where he makes forty dollars a month. He's doing an industry. He does get all the reps of becoming great at his business, even though he didn't make very money. And then in that environment, he. Resources are scarce, so you really have to be creative and you have to work with other people. So you come here where resources aren't scarce, where there's lending, where there's BK laws, where not just, you know, in other countries only rich people can borrow money. I mean, you have to get it from family. There, there is no credit system. And so it was weird to me that they get this momentum and can get things happening so fast. Okay, I just I just looked it up because um, I am not good at geography. Moldova is apparently between Romania and Kiev. If that gives you an idea, it's a tiny country that that borders Romania. So, no, a lot and, of these people they come in the go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry. No, no, you go. Well, another thing that I, I was kind of thinking about was my my own journey through. You know, I've worked in banking for a long time and auto finance and credit cards. And a lot of people, when they come a little bit older and they get their first credit cards, they're getting more of the premier stuff. They don't have to start like the 18 and 19-year-olds do here with a Sears card or Victoria's Secrets. Um, auto loans as high as we live in Oregon where auto loans are 30%. Check cashing places for the lower class. And ATM card machine fees for the lower class. And so you kind of have to earn your way to get established in, in credit so you can borrow money at a a rate that you could actually pay it back. I mean, some of these interest rates and stuff is set up for the lower class to, to never be able to get out from underneath these credit cards or, or these auto loans. Right, and that's that's what I think of oftentimes when I think of check cashing places is I think of lines of people who don't have bank accounts. I, I think of, like, the um, immigrant population in, in in Oregon that, like, they they show up and they don't have an account and the, to to be fair, 
Um, you're going to hear this a lot from a higher social class. They talked about, well, I taught my kid, you know, to be good with his money and to not do credit cards. But what they mean is a lot of times the, the people who have who are really astute on finances, let's say you're born, Joe, and I was your father, I would put I put a credit card in your name. I put your social security on one of my, so you're establishing credit from the age of three or four. Right. And then by the time you're 18, you have a credit score of 800 and you don't know, how is that possible? It's impossible for anyone without the parents helping them. And when they say they teach your kids not to pay credit cards, when the kid's away at Oregon State or Oregon, they pay the, the balance every month <laughs> when the kid's buying things for school. <laughs> and they say, which is, is that the same thing, Joe? Well, I, okay, so I, I want to kind of like establish some, um, some, rock bottoms here um all the stuff i know about money that is smart i did not learn from my parents and i i i don't know how your parents were with money but like when we talk about whether or not a immigrant has a better chance with their money than we do i think it comes from a place of like i was from the lower social class where my father had incredible student loan debt that he dodged his whole life Everybody had medical bills. Everybody had warrants. Like, all the things that we cover in this episode that will make you have debt, it, we had all of it. Um, and so now that I know what, what Todd is talking about, I know little tricks just because I've heard stories and talked to smarter people than myself. I know that um, one of the tricks you can do is you can get your children involved in child acting, and if you can get them paid then you can open up accounts way earlier than normal. You can start building their credit and their savings. Like, you can open basically adult accounts of certain types because they're technically working, even though they are, like, seven. So, like, <laughs> I know light speed tricks that, like, my parents were, like, barely hip to, you know, what a, a you know, what credit payments really should be. Um, so that, that I just want to start with, like, when Todd and I talk about being saddled with American debt, it's it's we come from a place of seeing it happen. <laughs> well, and I don't I don't want to think I, I think too where we're talking about a, a country that where you make forty dollars a month. If you really let that sink in, right? How low that is. Yeah, I think that's going to be in your DNA, similar to the Depression generation in this country. A scarcity grab value of money that we just wouldn't have. You know, they, they, they really see a thousand dollars as a million dollars and treat it accordingly. They're good stewards of it. Right. Right. I mean, I think the only American who can live off that much money is uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Obviously, she's proven it with her Twitter <laughs> and her, her goop posting. I'm, I'm kidding. Obviously, yeah, right. right. <laughs> she she uh, spends that much on soap a day. Right. And caviar yeah. costs more than that. Yeah. I love it when celebrities try that. Like they try to do what the you know, like what the poverty um, rating is, or, or what what immigrants live on a day, and they'll they'll try to live off that for a week or two, and they post about it, and that's yeah, self congratulatory nonsense. Um, what do Americans do? Like, okay, so Todd, why aren't you and I like instantly great at saving when we start making more money? Because like, I went from like my first job was a, technically a a shoe store like Al Bundy and and then I started getting into like obviously more helpful and lucrative trades and I got to like different branches of law enforcement 
but that money, like, you adjust to it, right? Like, why why doesn't your partner adjust to the money they make? What? Where is his home shopping network? Why isn't he spending it every month like I started to when I started making more? They do eventually, <laughs> but not right away. Then comes in uh, the AMG Mercedes and the, yeah, the clothes and this stuff. But it takes a little while. It it, it definitely it definitely not on the first generation. It, it I I call it it's like catching a cold. <laughs> you get Amer- <laughs> the, the second generation gets Americanized, and we know what happens with inheritances. You, it's you all catch gone. our spending habits like it's a disease. <laughs> well, and how, how often do you see people who are saying, you know, my my family? They're talking about their their family immigrant family my parents came here from vietnam my parents came here from poland with nothing and i and i was just i'm i'm so grateful for how hard they worked and then the kids are the kids are out pursuing their dreams with with it where they don't have to worry about um how to pay the bills how to how to eat and how to how to for shelter and food they're they're thinking about their next move you know right so we're we need to eliminate that um element right off the bat so okay so let's let's get into the science and uh, more or less the economy of this um we need to like first off we're going to eliminate motivation and hunger and grind um because most people when we when we have talked about this subject before you and i've talked about uh how the the rate at which immigrants start businesses and we've talked about you know work ethic and things like that we have episodes on work ethic actually um, but something we haven't talked about yet is how debt and the lack of debt affects people coming into the country. So, um, if anyone's listening to this and they're like, oh yeah, obviously you're going to be more prosperous and you'll start a business quicker and you'll have your, your savings done faster if you are hungry for it and you just work hard. We're going to get past the work hard part real quick. Um, I, I, I think Todd, you and I could say that we're both pretty hard workers, just ethically, um, and I have not yet started a business. Like I, I've, I've worked writing as a business and I, I have intentions later at some point down the road when I'm not as busy to start a woodworking business. Um, how many businesses have you started? Um, successful ones, three. Okay. Yeah. But I, yeah, I would say, I, mean, I think, I think writing is great. That's the same as this business. You, you work independently. You have customers. I mean, that's that's it. There's not. <laughs> yeah. So you have you have started your writing businesses to be a full time writer is <laughs> your own business that you're not getting a paycheck from you know the Wall Street Journal or anything. Right. When the when the tax sheet changes, it's a business. Or I guess also accurately, I, I worked with my brother and a couple other writers from time to time. So like there is some business elements to it definitely. Um, but if I am moving in from another country. And let's say I, I work a totally different trade, a real job. Writing's not a real job. Let's say I work like in concrete or, um, ooh, one of our episodes, we talked about the um, the mine strikes and they had a bunch of Italian workers come over to work the Smoky Mountain mines and they were um, stone cutters. They were amazing at like building bathhouses and things like that. Um, so hypothetically, we have somebody come over and they start with less credit um, because they, they, first off, usually, uh, according to peer research, 
34% of foreign-born Hispanic Americans arrive with no credit card or installment loans of any kind. Um, so already they have almost double the rate of not having ever taken credit or, or having ever taken a loan. Um, usually that's because it's not available. The idea that like you would show up to America and you've never actually taken a loan from a bank, it's not because it was a moral choice. It was just because the banks either wouldn't have loaned you money or you know you didn't want to do business with that bank their rates were so bad and their loans that were so predatory you knew not to take that loan um so compare that to um most americans who have some sort of installment or loan or credit card debt just right away like well like that's that's our first layer of uh debt shittiness that americans have to like sort of get used to wearing um then we get into uh how credit is scarcer um yeah go ahead let me let me touch on this a little bit so two things popped in my mind when you're talking about this i I worked in construction with this guy jake and and it was me and him both white american guys and we worked with two hispanic guys um and it was funny because (laughs) jake and i were always living day to day loaning each other money broke we made the exact same money as hispanics they were buying cars 20 grand cash they were saving money <laughs> right <clears throat> and I, and then when you were talking about that i worked in a car dealership early in my career and i was a finance manager and it was very difficult to dis- describe credit financing terms to hispanic people they had a hard time understanding and did not appreciate the fact that 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 the dealership wasn't getting the money that was going to the bank. <laughs> they just had right. a hard time because they hadn't been exposed to it. They hadn't had those. And like what you're saying, that loans are just predatory. What that means is you could never pay them back. You get a 5000 for where they're from in their community. If you get a $5,000 loan for a car, you could pay back 10000 and you still don't. It's never paid off. It's like a forever loan. So they're very wary and, and distrustful of, of, of lending in general. Right. Well, also, I, there's, I, I have had this experience um, working in, in my past field, and it's funny because you're trying to describe, like, no, 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 like, like, like here's how to get a credit card, here's how to get a loan, here, here's how to, like, start this, the process of credit. No, no, you have to put yourself into debt to start building credit, but it's temporary debt. And meanwhile, they have a car that they've paid off, and they don't have payments. Like, like <laughs> they're looking at you like you're crazy, and you're like, like no, no, build your credit. Saying. What's wrong with you, buddy? And he's like, no, I own everything I, I have. Everything is under my name, and it's it's paid for. <laughs> so. And then they, then they frown down upon you by not, not having any credit. Like, right. Oh well, you don't. Have, it's like like you said. That's you're setting yourself up to get comfortable. You're getting conditioned for debt. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We we yeah. If you become familiar with how credit works in America, you get used to the idea that you're going to have to use credit and manipulate it and work with the three big credit companies and 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 when you look at it from the outside, that's absolute madness. Like that is like. Why the hell would you play ball with a system that like puts you into debt permanently or semi permanently and and gives you a score based on how good you are with dealing with debt? Like that's that is absolute madness from the outside. That is what you know, like Roman senators warned about. So um, I obviously have a lot of feelings about credit. Um, when I got my PI license, half of it, like you can kind of choose the path you you study before you get a license everything i did was about credit like i i you you can um 
yeah, uh, going through the the Fair Credit Reporting Act is became my jam. Like I enjoyed that way more than I ever thought I would. I thought it would be mind numbing. I'll, I'll someday we'll do a whole episode where I actually make you want to kill yourself by reading you things from the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, so oh, trust me, compliance. <laughs> well, that well, that I was I was a regional manager for HSBC for their auto finance division, and at the time it was the biggest bank in the world, and. We, before they closed down their auto finance division, which I was shocked at, all of us were, because it was such a profitable thing. And we had a meeting with the CEO and all this, and they were explaining to us, like we were, you know, freshmen in college, that auto financing is is not worldwide like we think about it in America. America is one of the few countries, <laughs> there's only like five or six countries where auto where people get auto loans most countries people buy cars cash or they don't buy them at all they buy them used cash or they buy them new cash so and they explained how much more lucrative lending is with credit cards whether you're not actually having any collateral to chase after and all those problems and i just thought that was interesting because it's just so, so part of our um of our language and our um of American is you see car payments on on TV they get le- lease a Lexus for da 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 you know we think right. in payments even <laughs> we don't think of how much something costs we think of can we afford it on a weekly or monthly basis <laughs> I didn't think about that but you're right like when I watch a a commercial for a car and they like start rattling off their nonsense at the end they're like you know, like like zero you know APRs or something of approval like it, it's i don't even think about that 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 is its own language and that we are trained to interpret it as americans but we've we got that um so cnbc had a report out where they talked about how um uh immigrants who are moving to america to start their own businesses they're way more likely to pool money among family and friends to reach their goals um, which means that not just buying things, they, they are less likely to be in debt for starting businesses, which means that they have, like, they're, they're risking it all themselves when they start a business. But that also means that, one, they're tied to it, like, like they are more likely to work insane hours and to put it, they're all into keeping it afloat because it's entirely them and their family's money. Like, like whoever... Whatever family and friends handed them cash, like they they literally have their reputation on the line. But also it means that they don't have to pay back a bank to keep that business going. Like there's they're not indebted to somebody else. Like again, this this credit system isn't operating for them. They they just have the money and they have the business. I, you see the advantage. You see the advantage that that would be compared to people who would your parents have, have saved money and given it every cent they had to you to start a business that they knew nothing about no my my parents uh ritually borrowed money from me as i was growing up so like the idea that anybody in my family would hand me money to start a business isn't just foreign like that that's that's yeah again (laughs) crazy (laughs) it's impossible yeah it's not it's impossible yeah but on on the flip side we get you know a lot of the immigrants that i work with um they do everything for their kids. I mean, they 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 couldn't say no. They'd be so inf- they'd be so <laughs> inclined to do that, you know. And the grand everybody would be on board, you know. Yeah. No, I'm an older millennial. The the phrase my parents and the parents of my friends use there are you going to eat that is what we're used to hearing both financially and and in real time. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 yeah, man. Do you do you think that what would have happened to you in your life if, like, 
your parents had told you that like, okay, someday you're going to start a business. And when you do, we're all going to kick in and this is the raft that we will all float on like that. (laughs) That again, sounds crazy to me because that is so not the way we think. Well, I think it's a survival. I think if if you come from a country with less resources, um, you're going to recognize talents and um, streets of, of opportunity with different people, right? Like my friend I was talking about before, he, he has a um, he spent his 10,000 hours in a certain kind of construction field. So now he's going to use that. They trust him. They know that he's got done his 10,000 hours and that he's a professional. He's family and, and you know, blood's so thicker than water. And so so they, they feel a trust with, with family that they get because they ha- they've had to rely on each other to, to, to survive. Yeah. And survival in this country is much different than survival in a country where you make forty dollars a month. I mean, when they needed, there was days that they were hungry. We forget that that they were literally hungry. We use it as a <laughs> as a cliche, right? In this, yeah. But there, there's there's people from other part of countries that some don't eat every day. Yeah, for me, it's a term that came from the movie Rocky. It's it's he's not hungry enough to win. But there are people starting businesses in America who are literally were hungry for long periods of time. And they don't need credit as a prerequisite to start their business. They just start their business, like, and they will accept that it is a smaller business or that it that it is going to have to build up. Like, they will start, you know, a, a garage, a, a garage business, literally repairing cars in a garage, or you know, they will they will take a small shop over, you know, like something on Main Street. Uh, but I, I mean, I guess if you're working in cash, then that's kind of like the price you pay. So we're going to cover the kinds of debt people get into. Um, but first, I want to like start getting into the examples of like, okay, so Americans have a lot of debt. We have all these types of debt that we, that we mentioned in the narrative. Um, we have, uh, oh, by the way, I, I would like us both to ring in if we've had these at some point. Let's start with student loan debt. Have you ever had that, Todd? I haven't, but you know, I'm not. I'm not an academic of any. What about you? Briefly, um, uh, like I said, my father had student loan debt his entire life. The story of millennials is having student loan debt that all these companies got set up and established and get, got the thumbs up from the government to the tune that 13% of Americans still owe student loans. Um, what about month-to-month credit card debt? Oh yeah, I've <laughs> I've been up and down in the credit spectrum. I've I've been on on been underwater to the tune of probably seventy five to a hundred thousand dollars in credit cards, and then I've I've had available credit of a hundred grand with zero debt. So I've been all over that. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like that sounds like somebody in a casino. You're like you've you've won everything and you've <laughs> lost everything. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I've been through where you you know I've been bankrupt and I never actually declared bankruptcy, but I didn't have to. I just it was below, and then you start over. You, you know, you used to have Capital One credit cards with twenty thousand dollar limits, where you could go and buy a diamond ring for whatever you wanted. Or I even had an American Express one time that had no limit. I could buy anything. I that's still hard for me to get my head around, right? But then when things go south, you're starting out with these. Forget about mileage and bonus back and cash back. You get the credit cards where 
you get your credit limits two hundred dollars, and you have to pay a seventy five dollar fee to get that two hundred dollars, and then the interest is thirty percent. So, and then you build up, and then you start over, right? And work I, your way back up to the Capital One one, <laughs> and then go down again. <laughs> so what's the, the old phrase? Work toward that brass ring. Not for me. I'm working toward that platinum club card. <laughs> um, I the one that that was next on our list, the one in ten uh, Americans having medical debt. That's the one that got me. I had that for a, a couple of years, and it was crushing. Um, and then, as we mentioned in our opening, um, a, a tremendous amount of Americans have warrants for small things like, and we'll we'll get to the actual statistics and how far we will go to get those paid. But what this taught me, like this episode, is. When you, you when you originally pitched this episode idea, you you called it just baggage, and then I I had to actually parse out all of the things that you can have as baggage in America, and it turns out that um, almost everybody has something, at, to the point where like back in like the fifties or sixties, like my grandparents would have kind of like shamed me for having any kind of debt or any kind of like unsettled up tab, and nowadays. You don't even blink if somebody is like, yeah, I've got outstanding loans or debt or warrants or something. It's like, no, 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 that is normal. In fact, we had an episode about Aaron fatigue where we talk about how like online systems and systems of payment and just like uh, especially like hospital bills, they're designed to be very confusing and extend the amount of time that you are paying them. Like everything in the system is basically designed to keep you paying longer especially by sort of like overwhelming you. So we now have people that are in the Venn diagram of all four of those things that I mentioned that have all the baggage. Like they have not just one suitcase they're dragging around full of bricks. They have four and they are being killed slowly. Like it's swamping them. (laughs) And to make things so much worse, we now have systems and businesses that will hijack the American court system to just be debt collectors. Like our opening narrative was about that hospital that just as a matter of course, people wanted to pay them back and people wanted to pay their bills. And and instead, like they, they had hundreds and hundreds of people going to court because it was cheaper for them and easier for them to just say to the court, collect this please. And then they would be dragged in and they'd have to pay attorney fees on top of their medical fees. Um. I think What's, I found, yeah. What, what we talked about in that episode is what uh, medical companies doing were just, they're very loosely billing everybody. So they weren't checking deductibles. They, they're just billing everybody. And, and what they figured out was if the dollar amount is low enough, a very high percentage of people just pay the bill. They don't ask any questions because they don't have time. They're so busy in their regular life. Unless you get a jerk like Joe who reads every goddamn thing. And then he, <laughs> he right. calls them, hires an attorney. No, Joe would actually become an attorney to fight these things. <laughs> <laughs> he's, so, he's so thrifty. It's, uh, it is the cheapness, not the intelligence. I just want to say that. I, I called every Monday because I am crazy. <laughs> it is not because I'm smart. <laughs> Um, and nothing else going on. <laughs> no, no it's upsetting. But the, yeah. It's upsetting when you have good credit and, and somebody. When you've worked hard to be responsible and you're getting threatened and it's 
it's not fair and you pay for insurance and they're still not paying they're not cooperating and think about think about this they're talking about this methodist church or this methodist hospital and these people are working hard in in, in health care you know frontline what we call heroes now and they're being sued by where they work can you imagine how uncomfortable that is when you're when you're when you're a paycheck and your bill collector are the same thing right and contractually you can't go to somebody else for medical uh coverage like that was that was the part that like tore me apart when I read that is my heart went out because reading it the, these people were not allowed to seek medical care anywhere else but their own company knowing full well that they're going to be seen in court that that they're not going to send them a bill they're going to send them a a court summons that's <laughs> which is again that is that is twisting absolutely twisting the 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 meaning of the law like like we we hope and we pray that the law works like an episode of NCIS where people are actually trying to solve crimes. But what this episode has kind of helped reveal to me is, nope, it's just a debt collecting system, like almost through and through. Um, in fact, we have a, we have a story about uh, a guy that got into a standoff with U.S. Marshals over a tiny student loan. Can we, can we talk about that? Oh, yeah, this is great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, this... <laughs> This happened, and it wasn't that long ago. Uh, this was in 2012. Um, a, a warrant was issued for, for this man for not paying, get this, 1500 in federal student loans. Now, what's to it's me like is funny about this. money. Is, yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know if that, I don't think that even pays for your books for one semester of a community college, but $1,500 <laughs> is not very much, right? Well, this was for he borrowed back in 1987, which that probably paid for books and classes and everything. But this was 29 years later, and he doesn't remember a conversation, and he and he didn't receive any notifications, any emails, any phone calls, certainly any paperwork in the mail. So when he failed failed to appear for this court date that he didn't know about, two uh, deputy sheriffs came to his house, guns drawn, to arrest him. Now, it it escalated quickly because he didn't know who these guys were. He knew nothing that was going on. So it's very, very dangerous because he he's scared. Yeah. <laughs> so there, he's a gun-carrying citizen, and he's in Texas, which I think everyone has at least two guns in Texas. Isn't that right? When you arrive in Texas, eagles take a gun belt and, like, strap it around your <laughs> middle. So I know this guy had one. This kind of reminds me of like those myth stories where that you get that library book, right? And then at five cents, it turns into be a five million dollar debt. That's exactly <laughs> so. what I was thinking. What I, I was thinking, I, I made the blockbuster joke, but honestly, it sounds like yeah, you didn't return a book, and and then years later, police show up. <laughs> so, it got resolved. The fifteen hundred dollars federal debt, it's turned, it's ballooned into fifty seven hundred dollars, and um, but the judge worked with him to make some payments on it he the guy says he's shaken and uh and then he had a he had the greatest line about this one he said why send seven guys with guns <laughs> for a student loan <laughs> and that's a fair question with, with with all the things that are going on in this world with kids being molested and drug use heroin meth use why are we using our resources tax paid resources and over a stupid um you know, civil, federal, forgotten about loan. Right. Do we want to, 
this is leading to like a slightly dark place. Are you okay with us talking about like how much of policing is technically debt collection? Please. Okay. <laughs> so um, you're not you're not you're not getting paranoid. These are real facts, right? Okay, I I am absolutely citing sources every step of this way because I don't want to sound like a complete and total kook. Um, I have a tinfoil hat Joe's on. Flirt, and, you know, with, with these kind of things, he gets kind of weird. I'm going to tell you. Yeah, he gets a little bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our our first sources are uh, Manchester University's criminology website. Um, Manchester has stats uh, that I'm collected for the U.S. and we also went to uh, Reuters, um, which is basically just like again raw stats we'll, we'll have links for all of these because we want you to check it out and we want to be checked on these um now they you've heard this the term sword of damocles the reason i bring this up is manchester's criminology stats literally compare america's system to the sword of damocles um they talk about how the majority of arrests are for low-level offenses um which, uh, as high as if you just kind of, like, take all of the, like, arrestable offenses in America and put them all into a bucket, 80% of them are low-level, um, meaning, like, traffic tickets. Uh, most bench warrants are for, like, failure to appear. <clears throat> the fine part is the part that snowballs. Right. Where people, are, where people are coming back into court because they haven't paid their fines, because they can't afford to pay their fines, because they just can't budget that into... They're already just barely living by paycheck to paycheck. Right. They're, they're issued a post arraignment uh, for administrative reasons. And then after they don't pay the fine, they get a, a failure to appear slapped on their record. Um, and that's and that's you, you, you got to drive to work, even though your driver's license is suspended because you don't have eighteen hundred dollars to get it back. But you do still have to go to work and take your kids to school. So it does. It, it, it can snowball. Right. And I think originally that might have been I'm like I'm I'm not a lawyer obviously, but that that looks like to me a system that was in place because we want people to pay their fines and we want people to appear in court, so obviously you're going to need a system where you want yeah. to penalize people for not showing up and and going through due process. What it's become is a system where they rely on a certain number of people to not show up and it supports how much money you make off somebody. Like if if you hand out if you're living in Miami Gardens and the police arrest you 86 times uh for extremely minor violations like i mean like almost literally nothing then you end up with a system where you have to go and appear in court 86 times and pay a fine you can't pay and then eventually you you stop doing that and and suddenly the court can say oh we're owed this much money this justifies us you know working you know 6 days a week um, so there's a, a, a group, Catalyst California, uh, which is um, part of ACLU, and they revealed numbers about the California policing. Um, so we're, oh, and this was re-reported by New York Times, so it was fact-checked, uh, and they found that about 4% of police officers' time is devoted to violent crime. So when I, when I made the joke about, uh, I hope it's NCIS, like, I hope it is, like, most like 99% of what cops do is policing to crack down on violent crime, to stop burglaries, to stop, you know, stabbings, to stop murderers and sex trapping. That's not true. It's, it's only about 4%. Um, 
Less than 25% of all property crime is cleared. And in L.A., 88% of the county sheriff's officers spent time on stops that were officer-initiated rather than responses to calls. So it is almost the reverse of what I was hoping it would be. Um, In this particular instance in L.A. County, uh, almost 90% is just stopping people on traffic violations um, and on on small tickets. Um, That's just a waste. It seems like just a waste of or just bad priorities, right? Doesn't it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to and I know what you're saying you have to you have to you know there is revenue based on tickets and this and that, but I, when so many bad things are going on with school shootings and drug abuse, you know, which is very visible where we live in Portland, Oregon and where you used to live in Portland, Oregon, not anymore on right. the farm, but doesn't that just seem like we're just putting our attention in the wrong place? <laughs> All for money. That's what it's yeah, about. It's all a- about money. It's all about. It's all about. I mean, I, do the math on that. What do all those things add up on? Right. As somebody who has, um, I when I was working um, security downtown, um, I worked with Portland Patrol and a couple other groups, and it was like I the idea of. Like, I only ever saw the cops responding to things that were necessary. They would show up when things were going bad, and they were professional, and they did their job, and it was great. And then going back and looking at the statistics and seeing that I was only seeing the 11% where they arrive for calls or for reasonable suspicion of a crime, that changes the way I see it. Like, like I know, I understand now that I was seeing them at their best, and I was seeing what policing should be. What it actually is most of the time is um, traffic stops and, um, you know, stopping for violations. Um, and these are what we're talking about. When we, when we refer to Americans have, you know, like where we have a Venn diagram of types of debt you can get into. This is one of the ones that happens extraordinarily frequently where everybody will at some point pay a traffic ticket or a fine. Just period. Everyone will. It's That won't put you into debt. But what will put you into debt is when you fail to come in and and pay it um traffic tickets become bench warrants like non-criminal offenses like parking in a bad spot or failing to yield they become criminal offenses which when you don't appear which means you're totally screwed the next time you apply for a job or a house um and that's not a fluke it sounds like that is like a a candy land or monopoly-esque like you have to step on all the bad squares to get there it's like no, you just don't appear once uh, or you can't pay once and you are now, like, you take a non-criminal offense to criminal levels. Um, well, and and it, that's... Yeah, you you don't always get notifications. You know, oh, yeah, that's an excuse. But, like, let's say let's say someone's young. Let's say the 87 the example of the story we did before. Um, you had a lot of different loans from a lot of different sources and it, it, it we're very human and we, we misplaced something and forgot about something because we were paying so many other things and life goes on, it's easy to happen. It's easy to happen. <laughs> right. Um, the Manhattan District Attorney uh, came out in public and said that these outstanding warrants are driving a wedge between the police and the community that he's trying to serve. And he's, he claims that they're unnecessary obstacles for housing and employment. That That's what ends up happening is like the, the result isn't you know, you now have a criminal offense and, and all of these thousands of people are running around with criminal offenses and it's it's just a, a black mark on them. It's like, no, 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 it's not just a black mark. 
you are now out of the pool for like doing the things we are. We start the episode talking about how a immigrant with no baggage whatsoever can get loans from their family and start a business. Now you can't, if you have one of these, um, like these bench warrants turn into a criminal offense, you're out of housing, employment loans and business. So, um, this, uh, okay. We mentioned that the U S marshals came for, uh, Paul Aker for $1,500 of student loan. So the U S marshals implemented something to try to like curb this, they tried to implement a Fugitive Safe Surrender Program, FSS, and it's to bring in high-level fugitives, like to bring in serious crime. And uh, it became clear after implementing it that they were only really able to net low-level offenses with it. Like, like they kept using it almost like, it's like they were handed a hammer and they kept using it to pound on screws. Yeah, it, it, it's weird to read this. Like, I, I probably spent more time looking into the law enforcement arm of this than I did the loans. I think generally because loans are kind of boring. We all know how they work in America. We know they exist and we know they suck and that everybody has them. Um, But to know that the criminal justice system is mostly geared toward collecting on those loans and not only collecting on the loans you get from companies like a crooked hospital that forces you to take a bill or, you know, student loans that are already predatory. Not only will the U.S. Marshals show up to collect that if, you know, things go wrong, but the police themselves are designed to also be a loan system that collects on it. Yeah, and I, I think that the, the misconception, too, is that this money is, is lost. I, I don't think they know how, how successful and profitable these finance companies are. Right. Um, being from the, I tell you, I have a myth that I think a majority of people, even well-educated people in auto finance business, don't don't realize and don't understand. There's, let's say you let's say you go out and you buy a car for twenty thousand, you put ten thousand dollars down, right, and you're mid you know minimum minimum credit twelve to fifteen percent on a used car, or whatever, um, standard rates now. Well, people think, well, why would the bank would love to repo that car because they've already put ten thousand dollars down? No, they wouldn't. <laughs> they're right. loaning money on a depreciating item the real profit is in people making their payments on time or even better just a little bit late that is so much more profitable than repoing the car and reselling it to somebody everyone says oh they just get it back and they sell it to someone else and make twice as much no it's so profitable the first arrangement they have set up on interest and, <laughs> and penalties <laughs> it doesn't matter what you put down right it's if if anybody repos something from you, unless it's a house, the odds are they're not going to get their money back. It's better to keep you paying. Am I correct in that? Well, yeah. And didn't we lo- didn't we learn that with with these um, the mortgage crisis? That's yes. a prime example. Those banks didn't win getting all those houses back. <laughs> they no. should have, right? <laughs> they should have. It makes sense. The, yeah, but they but think about it. They're they're in the real estate business. You would think, oh, that's a safe bet, right? They. They've made all this interest all these years, right? They've, they have. You would think it'd be great for them to get those houses back and resell them. No, it didn't work out so good. <laughs> right. And and we've learned from companies that now buy up housing to turn into rentals. That's where the money is. The, the mistake the banks were making is they were treating it like a tradable asset, and they were just sort of like buying houses to have houses to trade again. What they really should have done is they should have used all of that to basically make a rental fleecing system like these rental companies have and never sell it 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't want to give any more tips to any bankers listening to us, if any do. But um, okay, so what happens when this the, the these two intersect? Um, when a immigrant owned business collides with um, police trying to get some some small tickets passed? Do we have a story about that? We do. In, in Tib- Tiburon, California, there was a a Kenyan man who's married to an Ethiopian woman. They're both immigrants. They were educated overseas. And this is a town of about 10,000 people. Okay, so it's a, it's a smaller town. It's not a tiny place, but it's not, it's not a big city either. And they have a small clothing store. Well, the police came by at night. They, him, his wife, um, and then they had one of their employees, and they're all African-American. Um, they're selling ethnic kind of clothes that's what their store is the police came by and started harassing them about why they were why they were open and that this this was suspicious now this his last name is awash the kenyan man he is not a quiet guy he did not appreciate this and it's all on the the police's body can and I'm, I'm, we've got the the link i want you to watch it because it's pretty funny I want to know what you're doing at the store at one o'clock in the morning. Okay. If I tell you it's my store, then what? Then show me that it's your store. I do not have to show you nothing. You are in you. store yeah. after hours when yeah. the stores are closed. You should be grateful that we're being as as diligent as we are to look out for the street. That's all we do. He gets pretty worked up, and he knows exactly what this is from the jump. He's being identified because they're black people in a small town. And he's screaming at them. Everybody knows us to the point where the police is like, well, you should be thanking us for coming and checking on your business. Just very <laughs> condescending. And right. And I just couldn't believe he had the nerve. At one point, there's a white man for one of the neighbors who's screaming out the window because he's tired of the noise. Hey, it's their effing business. Leave them alone. You know? <laughs> right. But can you believe that? You're in there doing inventory. And, and the point of the Kenyan man was a lot of people stay after work and do work. They're just here harassing us. It's just absolute targeting because of the race we are, because we're right. not white. I I think that there's two, like the, the two takeaways from that to me are the obvious one, which is um, this is an officer who is facing discipline and their whole um, their whole policing system is about to change. Like they they got um, sweeping departmental changes after this because it was such an issue that they like like in the video like it, it's it's the the cop was trying to tell him put your key in the door. Let me see that it's your business. Like that it, that you own this business. Like prove it by putting your key in the door. He wasn't asking for ID. He wasn't asking for. You know, like like there, there wasn't anything to to question him on. There's no reasonable suspicion. Again, eleven uh, percent of the policing done in California is reasonable suspicion. The rest is just ticketing, I guess. Like, well, yeah. So he, well, and then this this yeah. falls into the, Gladwell talked about this where it's they're, this they're trained to come and harass someone. And let's just take an example of this one out of it, but uh, pulling somebody over and say, "Well, where are you from?" Well, why is yeah. your registration say this? Where's your and they and they scare you and spook you and and regardless of who you are, they're an authority figure and they have a gun and they can take you to jail. It, it, it makes you uncomfortable. And, and some of us say things and how do we act when we're under that kind of pressure? And but this is not 
a cop acting up. They are trained to do this to yeah. get lower level tickets. It's it's harassment, but with but with revenue in mind. They I'm so <laughs> glad you went to the same place I did mentally. I did not see this as this is a a a protest in the making. I saw this as here is a successful business owner. They made it their success story, and we will still try to find a way to put you in debt. We will still find a way to ticket you if we have to make things up or make you nervous or like there's no there's nothing in the police handbook I guarantee that says make them pull out their key and put it in the door to prove it's theirs that is not a standard operating procedure this is we want money from you and we will find a way to ticket you even if you have literally done every single step right and you have your business made Obviously, I, I feel very strongly about this. I don't know if that came through. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. So the results of this, so that we don't keep everybody in the, the lurch, uh, go watch the video. It's it's very good. Um, but after the Tiburon police incident, the department has to pay a $150,000 settlement, which um, they're going to have to work extra in tickets to get that back, I think. Um it's going to they made it easier to identify police who are acting with the public interacting with the public because the police didn't adequately identify themselves during this exchange um they're making it easier to fire police who are you know um put on suspension or who are um, disciplined multiple times um and the supervising officer and the police chief resigned Okay, so we got to answer the question that we started this with. If we are going with the the we're the the land of opportunity, I I still believe that on some level. But if we are comparing showing up with a family willing to loan you money and a blank slate, and you've never incurred debt before, versus we have a system that tries to get you to take loans as a student, we try to get you hooked on loans at some point in your life through credit cards. We have medical loans that are incredibly predatory, and we have a ticketing system that will try to ticket you for minor stuff in the hopes that you actually don't pay it on time. Uh, would you take the clean slate advantage, or would you take what we have right now? It's a no-brainer. It's a no-doubt. I, I, I loaded the shit out of that question. I'm sorry. I read too much about this. You should have asked me, honestly. like I don't know why you're letting me run things. Well, the statistics of it are, you know, how, how the jump in their income and their savings—it's—it's it's not even measurable. It's—it's it's, it's a landslide victory for, for the immigrants. And and that's what you've witnessed, and and then you asked absolutely me to, to prove it with an episode. <laughs> Why do you do this to me? <laughs> and you did, <laughs> as always. Uh. To recap our episode today. Here are a few hypothetical differences between starting a business as a citizen versus arriving with a clean slate. An immigrant coming to the U.S. workforce often does so without ever borrowing credit from a major banking institution. A student arriving to the workforce out of college does so with predatory loans and can be visited by a U.S. Marshal if they don't make payments. An immigrant leaves their out-of-country traffic tickets behind. An American with non-criminal infractions can have their bench warrants upgraded to criminal offenses, making it impossible to secure business loans or houses. 
An immigrant often pools resources with their family and everyone works to pay for their first brick and mortar. An American can be sued by the business they work for because it's less costly to use the legal system like a bludgeon. But there is one thing that unites us all, whether you're born in America or you immigrate here. If you get seriously ill in this country and you don't have a premium insurance, you're fucked. <laughs> You've been listening to the Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. <laughs>